Hi there, it's Alicia, co-host of Next Generation Innovators. On last week's episode, Brooke and I sat down with Michelle Gallagher, the CEO of Opal, to talk about the incredible things the company is doing with AI, social media, and health. If you haven't heard this episode yet, do yourself a favor, head over and give it a listen. As well as being a delightful human being, Michelle has so many lessons about building a company, taking risks, and owning your ambition. We also spoke about some of the lesser known benefits of AI collection in the healthcare sector. And here's what Michelle had to say. We often think about the negative consequences of AI, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because I quite like the fact that us as ordinary people are talking about the unintended consequences of technology and they're significant. So we've got a long history of seeing car crashes happen with technology that we didn't quite expect. But there's some really wonderful things that AI does and we sometimes don't bring those ideas into the light because we become so reluctant about the risk. But one of the amazing things AI does is years ago, I used to be the chairman of this group in Melbourne called the Systems Biology Working Group. Sounds as boring as all get out and look, frankly, some of the time it really was. But no, what it was, sounds sexy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Systems Biology. Yeah. Um, but what it was actually, the real words around this is this was using big computers to find drug targets. So this is taking all of the amazing data that sits inside our hospitals. So one of the things that Australia has done really, really well in the cancer space is we've been collecting data since way back in the 1960s before we even could imagine this is what computers could do. So we've got these like piles and piles of data in our hospital system and in government healthcare organisations or health departments, and that data is just sitting there gathering dust. And so this was about 2010, and we started thinking, well, now that supercomputers were starting to be used, how could we unlock these vast libraries of data, and how could we potentially let the computers loose. And one of the things we were trying to do with very early form of AI was find drug targets. So back in the old days, we used to do these cell assays and we would have high throughput screening. So all these fancy pants terms, which means very laborious, takes a long time, so like 15 years. And we would be discovering these little bingo drug targets from all sorts of stuff. This was just unleashing a speed that we just couldn't have imagined in this space. So drug targets is one area. Sorry, Michelle, what's a drug target? Oh, thanks very much. I appreciate you pulling me up on the jargon. That's okay. That's all right. I think this is important because we don't want to sort of make, you know, a barrier for people to sort of get into this conversation. A drug target is, you know, natural products are actually a good description here. So at the time, about half of all of the world's top-selling drugs on the market were derived from natural sources. So most people don't know that, that things like blood pressure medication initially comes from the chemical synthesis of snake venom. And then you've got what? things that occur in nature have been synthesized. So we often think there's a huge difference between pharmaceutical products and natural medicines. In fact, there's not. They're actually yeah. very, very close together. 
Years ago, I worked for a company that looked at all of these natural products that occurred in the Australian flora and fauna. And what we were doing was screening all of these naturally occurring chemicals or um, combinations against arthritis or cancer or inflammation or whatever. And this would be really laborious and we would come up with a drug target or a drug candidate. And then we would start to synthesize that because you can't always use exactly what's occurring in nature because it's not stable. You know, you can't always create it in the volumes that we need for a global drug. So you've got to create a synthetic version of that. So you come up with a candidate or a drug target. Michelle also explained to us Opal's involvement in the race for a COVID-19 vaccine. So what our AI model has done, it's taken 475 COVID trials that are in phase one, two, and three, the three phases that all drugs go through. And we looked at the vaccines and we also looked at the drug therapies and said, all right, let's predict and see which ones will come out the end. So we trained our algorithm by taking 300,000 past trials and thing about the clinical trials industry is they're very regimented about making sure that all the tests are done exactly the same because you want to be able to prove unequivocally that your drug works or it doesn't work in that case. So we're able to train our algorithm going back to 2005 and all of this information was sitting in a government repository. We're not the only ones doing it. There's a few teams around the world racing to do this. But the outcome of this is we're able to predict a probability of success. So in the early stage trials, it's very, very low. But typically a vaccine would only have a 3% chance of getting to the end anyway. But as you go through into phase two and then phase three, the probability of success goes up. But what we think we can do is help governments make a decision around which vaccines or which drugs are likely to succeed and then to plan for those ones. I want to stick with this just for a second. And I'd like, if you can, for those of us that aren't sitting in the thick of it, just to break down when you say that you're gathering this data, that the data is in government repositories, that you're analysing it now from 300,000 prior um, clinical trials, what exactly are you doing with the data? (laughs) Can you just make it really simple? You know, what what does it consist of? How long does it take for this prediction to be made or set of predictions? Yeah, so some of this is secret source. So when you work with software, no, that's all right. I won't tell anyone. We won't tell anyone. (laughs) All right, so we'll keep our voice down really well. Yeah, just make it a secret. I'll close the door. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So so that's the interesting thing about intellectual property and software. So a lot of this is trade secret and know-how and copyright, so not necessarily a patent. So that's something that I'm learning at the moment around data and and this clinical trial predictor tool. But taking a step back, so every clinical trial that is done by a pharmaceutical or a med tech company is registered with a national regulator. So in the US, it's the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and usually every trial is registered with clinicaltrials.gov. And in Europe, there's a similar one. In Australia, it's the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. And so in every major jurisdiction, major country, there's there's one of these regulators. So the good thing about this, when trials are registered, you can see what's called their protocol, which is the recipe for the trial. So you know how many patients, when they're dosed, you know some information about the chemical entity, whatever that is. 
so there's quite a lot of information. So there's more than about 140 variables here. So all of this is publicly available. So it's up to the companies to share this and they do because the regulator makes them do it. So as each trial is registered, we can pull that down. So these days we're starting to see a lot of companies share negative clinical trials. So in the past they didn't do this. They didn't share their negative clinical trials because negative outcomes were still very, very valuable. But now more and more companies are starting to share negative clinical trials. The great thing about COVID is we're starting to see particularly pharma companies and medtech companies collaborate on a scale that we've never seen before. And this is really interesting. So they're putting intellectual property aside to a degree and starting to share information. So and that's what I said earlier. You know, this was one of my realisations going back years ago that government had all of these amazing repositories of data that were being underutilised. Because for one, people just didn't know they were there and didn't know how to access them. So it was only about 18 months ago that we started to see companies wake up, companies like us, wake up to the fact that all of this amazing information about clinical trials was publicly available. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've done is taken all of that data and started to order it. And then what we try and do is we start to group it and then we start to look for patterns. I'm kind of making it sound really simple and it actually is this simple that the computer program just starts looking for patterns. And so it looks at what's worked in the past, what were the variables that were in place at that time, what variables would you need to put in place to get a success out the other end. And then what we're doing now is using this field of artificial intelligence called explainable AI, which makes this learning leap. But what if you did this? And then that's where you get those big creative genius moments that computers are now becoming quite skilled at doing. But again, it's about training the algorithm to understand that's a reasonable leap, whereas that one's not a reasonable leap. So it needs a lot of human interaction in the training process to ensure that the computers are behaving the way that you actually want them to behave. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Next Generation Innovators. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode and we'd love it if you could leave a rating, review or share this with someone that needs some advice when it comes to starting or running a business. The next episode is out on Thursday, so we'll see you then.